My first memory, bizarrely, is I remember being at a, a birthday party with uh, my cousins. I grew up in, in Ardling in North Belfast and I remember being down at someone's house and I, I don't have this, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty old, I sort of feel quite bad that I have really an appalling memory <laughs> and I think I'm like five or six. Like this isn't, I've heard other people talk about being like two and three years old. That's not stuff. bad. Some people are like, yeah, my first memory is when I was 13. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, you had an I've literally, I think, I was like five or six being at a birthday party and the sort of tells a lot about my personality that it was like Mount, Mount Margaret was like giving me an ice cream it was like, it was like a defining <laughs> moment going, yes I got the one that I wanted that's, well, what that's unreal. Sort of I'd love to have something more noble or poetic but yeah being handed an ice cream so good uh, I really want to chat more about your growing up in the state you grew up yeah. in because there's something in the water because there's lots of absolute legends yeah, that yeah, come from there uh, but just for the people who've just jumped in so sitting down here today with Aidan Larkin really excited this has been a long time coming I mean we first met like six months ago so it seems that way yeah. <laughs> it's exciting to uh, finally, mic up. So, Aiden is the asset recovery director at Wilson's Auctions. Uh, in layman's terms, or in my terms, you sell the stuff. Well, part of your job is you sell the stuff seized by the police of criminals. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, that is that's pretty exciting. It's interesting because there's never sort of two days the same, and the sheer variety of assets that we get the cover off is it's ridiculous. It's a, <laughs> as an ex tax inspector, it's a conversation killer. It used to be <laughs> tell me what you do. Really, it sounds, but it is interesting, and there's a there's a great good news story to it as well because there is a victims at the end of this, and mm. the, what you're doing and what we're doing as a company gets money back to the victims. So that, that's the bit that really so makes good. you sort of feel good about yeah. what you're doing. And in that journey and in that experience, you also picked up the title of the world's first. Bitcoin auctioneer? Yeah, I, say it was, um, <laughs> I, can't, I can't take the credit. It was, a, it's, a, it was it's a Wilson's Auctions accolade. I just happened so to be the, sort of the lucky person. I was the actual auctioneer. Um, but again, yeah, it's a, I love the whole backstory and it all came out of, we were talking about it in digital DNA and it's a nice sort of, we talked about sort of Northern Ireland and Belfast punching above its weight mm. sort of worldwide and of this sort of 80-year-old auction company <laughs> can all of a sudden be doing the world's first sort of seized sort of Bitcoin auction. And then that all of a sudden got me in sort of talking to startups and tech companies. And it's not just sort of 18 and 19-year-olds with an idea that can do something yeah. new. So, um, yeah, we've had some sort of interesting and it almost sounds like Tourette's when we're having these conversations. <laughs> Someone going, is that the Bitcoin or the Bentley or the Code? <laughs> so good. So, yeah, I mean, in today's episode... All I'm not going to do is just find out some of your story, hoping to talk about some of the weird and wonderful things Aiden has auctioned off, how a traditional 80-year-old family business is booming and thriving and very disruptive kind of economy, and also the path that you have taken uh, to get to the success you've experienced so far. So all this and more coming up on today's show, and uh, we're really looking forward to sitting down with Aiden. Hi, I'm Aiden Larkin, and you're listening to Best of Belfast. Alright folks, what's the crack? My name is Matthew Thompson and welcome to Best of Belfast, the podcast that celebrates Northern Ireland and the incredible people in it. The show is brought to you from our recording studio in Ormo Baths, Barclay Eagle Labs, a co-working space right here in the heart of the city centre. Support for Best of Belfast comes from listeners just like you, who pledge as little as £1 a month to join the Producers Club, get invitations to live podcasts and support us on our journey to 100 interviews. Big, big thanks to all of you who make the show possible, especially our Titanic producers, Barclays Eagle Labs, Ulster University, Gavin Wall, and of course, the wonderful Ormo Baths team. To find out more, get in touch or check out our back catalogue of over 80 incredible interviews, please visit bestofbelfast.org. That's it for me for now. It's time to jump straight into our conversation with this week's local legend. Really hope that you enjoy. 
So yes, start with uh, your estate because there's a couple of interesting folk have come out of that area, uh, you being one of them, and just tell me about what it was like growing up. Um, it, it certainly was. I mean, I was from from Ardling in North Belfast, which was um, a place that it's all over the news for all the wrong reasons many, many times. And even now, it's sort of 37 years of age, I meet people. I meet people. I met a guy uh, just two weeks ago in London who was ex-Special Forces. And oh, you're from Whoa. you're from the Ardoing. And <laughs> I always find it strange to anyone who's not from there calls it the Ardoing. Oh, if there's a the in front of it, it's serious. <laughs> it's a, yeah, the yeah, village. Uh, oh, do you see what you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it's, so it's that, you come from this sort of, um, sort of very, very small, tiny little place. Like there's one little strip of sort of green grass uh, in the entire place. But I um, am, I'm also very proud of where I'm from as well because you do have this sort of wonderful eclectic mix of people and it is it's a melting pot to say the least and it's it's also not without as many estates across Belfast and across the world everywhere has its challenges but I I almost like being in the position of challenging the stigma when you say to people mm. oh you're from Ardoing and you're going so was Mary McAleese it's not that you deserve a medal because you made it out I yeah. think that's more maybe how the media have portrayed it mm-hmm. and there's almost that expectation um, but only when you start sort of connecting the dots and bumping into people um, around the world and even LinkedIn and social media is a great yeah, thing yeah. for that you find out God, you were from Ardoing as well, and someone else grew up, and someone else. So, I often sort of tell my own boys, it doesn't really matter where you're from. It's yeah. it's the all of these different things create opportunity. I think the big tragedy is when sort of people either fall victim to their own stereotype, or it's sort of placed upon them, and they're not really given a chance. Whereas I was in a I was in a weird in between because I was going to a, a grammar school as well, so I got the experience sort of both things very, very early on. But um, I think those things do play a massive, massive uh, part. It gives you an empathy, um, hopefully, and an understanding instead of just jumping to judgment. I think that would be the number one thing I'd probably take from a whole experience there is that always get to know the people behind the story as mm-hmm. opposed to um, sort of letting their reputation precede them. Sure. I mean, talk to me. I mean, only if you feel comfortable with that wee bit in the middle. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're probably, oh, look at him in his posh uniform, you know, uh, and then you go to the posh school and it's like, yeah. who does this wee lad think he is coming in here? There you know was, what I mean? Uh, honestly, we, we talk about sort of threats earlier on. It, it was this sort of, I used to sort of joke, it was like sort of running the gauntlet because you were um, just last, a couple of weeks ago, actually, I caught up with a couple of guys um, who I went to school with and actually my old primary school teacher who is now the principal in St Malachy's and ah, uh, Paul cool. McBride so I sort of I joked that he sort of stalked me because I was his first primary <laughs> school teacher then I was playing the violin um, and I was seeing him in a school of music and then when I went to St Malachy's secondary school he was there in the secondary school and now he's there as the principal so we were catching up and, and joking about the fact that it is that running the gauntlet because you've got the grammar school uniform on mm-hmm. uh, I'm not posh I'm not posh <laughs> background I got lucky in my, 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 my transfer test and you're going sort of going to the bus stop with a violin under your arm just oh. to really add that bones out of your back <laughs> and then when you get down to the, the school and then all of a sudden you're going oh there's a ski trip on and someone's getting dropped off by their mum and dad in yeah. a nice car and the yeah. cleaner's dropping them off and you're, yeah you got, a, you got a massive sort of rude awakening to there's there's more than one side sort of to every story um, and it was challenging it was challenging to say the least mm-hmm. and you just touched on it so slightly there but one of the things we were talking about before the mic went on was you are a big fan of perspective. Mm-hmm. And the f- your favourite quote that you sent through was, you know, there's always two things. There's always two sides. Well, this is, and this is a, a massive sort of nod to my to my wife, Rachel. She's a psychotherapist. And it was something she'd sort of, 
caught me uh, when we when we first met. I was always I was racking my brains for all these quotes again. You've had such wonderful guests on. I've had these sort of really poetic <laughs> quotes, and um, my quote originally was always no make no uh, make no little plans. It was um, a great sort of Chicago architect had this no um, the sort of give me this quote about making big plans, and I always thought that's the type of thing I would lead with. But when I really reflected on it in the podcast sort of thought, actually, always two things is the thing for me that defines everything. Not even, and it's usually actually there's at least always two things. Mm-hmm. Right down from one of the earliest times sort of when Rachel and I were talking about it, someone cut me off in traffic. Mm-hmm. And instantly you're, you're calling them all the names of the day. And typical <laughs> sort of the Belfast is coming out of me when I'm driving through sort of Wales or England. And um, no, they're just selfish. No, they're just cutting me off. And she says, well, it could be this. It could be that they're dealing with an emergency. It could be they're having a really bad day. It could also be that they're really inconsiderate and selfish. <laughs> but you just don't know. So why yeah. stress yourself out about it? Yeah. And if I try and apply that to everything, if I try and pl- apply it to relationships, to to work, to sort of um, whether it's colleagues, whether it's clients, whether it's just everything and anything, I think it all of a sudden, it's quite a freeing thing. Mm-hmm. It's something Gary Vee sort of regularly talks about. I'm a big fan uh, of him and about this sort of, you know, there's this sort of like prison of judgment mm-hmm. we all sort of find ourselves in and actually... If you consider that there's always two things, sometimes you don't always have to hold yourself accountable as well. Yeah. I think it's just judgment is just everywhere. Yeah. And it's just, I can't imagine what it must be like to be growing up now with social media and all of these things around you um, compared to when I was growing up, for example. And now we've almost went completely further that there's always two things, but there's always about 15 incorrect things that are being pushed <laughs> down your throat as well. So yeah, I think it's a real challenge for everybody. So my, my, my sort of ethos is always just to try and take a step back and look at things. It's not always possible. It's not something I always, I don't always practice what I preach, but I try and sort of keep that as my sort of barometer as I go through this sort of weird and wonderful life with sort of traveling a lot and um, having different responsibilities and all the different things we do. I always just try and keep that as my sort of my my lighthouse, effectively. Awesome. So in that sort of, I sound really waffly and poetic. No, it's awesome, dude. You're speaking my language. I'm like, I'm in my element right now. I'm like, oh yeah. How many, he's, you've served me a vegan sandwich, and all of a sudden I'm getting a very Dalai Lama here. I wasn't expecting. That's the secret man. It indoctrinates everybody. That's how it works. Um, talk to me kind of about so the two things of your experience growing up, and what I mean by that mm-hmm. is you face a lot of difficulty, but in that difficulty you find opportunity. Explore. That with me. I, I think that there is, um, again, I'm always conscious of sounding sort of harsh. I think that um, personally, I had, a, I had a massive issues in school, clashed with a lot of people in secondary school, for example, probably because of where I was coming from. So I was coming in sort of preloaded with a lot of judgment that it was from an area. Um, and then you're coming in with a violin and you didn't really fit in. So I experienced the bullying. I didn't experience it sort of extensively. Lots of other people have always had it worse than you. But again, it's something that sort of my wife always pushed back on to say, it's about perspective. It doesn't matter if someone's had it worse than you. It's mm-hmm. how it affected you and you're allowed to be affected by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that obviously wasn't made clear to me growing up. And I think now you see some of the mental health issues, uh, particularly back in sort of my own sort of my own home patch and some of the tragic stories you keep finding. Trying to look at this always two things of, yes, you've got adversity. Yes, you may not be of a particular social standing. Yes, but actually... They're all excuses. Mm. I think right now there is a sort of gluttony of opportunity for anybody with a bit of will and a bit of passion. Um, If you are truly in that catchment of people that don't have access to a smartphone, if you're truly in a a poverty trap and all those, of course there's a segment of people that really are in a really, really difficult position. 
But I do think there's also a lot of people that are looking for those excuses. No, mm. I'd love to do this, but I can't. I mean, you actually really drill down through it. Well, well why not? And yeah. again, you go back to the, the Mary McAleese's, the, you know, the Sean and Jack. I didn't know she was from Ardoin. Yeah, That's from amazing. Ardoin, yeah. So, um, and, like, and, and what Sean and uh, Jack McGarty are doing out in New York. Uh, Dead Rabbit guys, yeah. I mean, it's just incredible when you see their story. I mean, mm. they've had the fire and the place is down its knees and they go again <laughs> and they write to the movies. I think they've got something else ongoing. So I always look at people like that and think, there really is no excuse mm. um, for, for, for some some people. And again, I don't mean that to sound harsh, but what I mean is I hate seeing people wasting sort of talent and wasting opportunity when there are a lot of people who would give their left arm for some of the things that sure. people complain about. And it's something I try and sort of sort of batter into my own sort of two yeah. boys yeah. when they complain that, no, I can't get online. The Wi-Fi is down. <laughs> <laughs> if only you knew two things like let's let me show you over here you know what someone who doesn't have something against people that have a sort of a sort of riches of different opportunities but for me personally i always sort of considered that for me the the big turning point was um for anyone sort of old enough listening there was a thing called project children um when i was uh, 11 years old and it was during the time sort of the peace process and the troubles in between that and what they would try and do these charities got together and would sort of take kids from disadvantaged areas and, and inverted commas um, and they would offer you and when you look at it now it's like some sort of weird dystopian hunger games where you basically your name was drawn out of a hat and you were sent off to a family in America if you try to explain that to somebody it is like that if you tried to, if someone said to me right now I'm taking your 11 year old son and putting him on a plane with a bunch 200 other kids and dispersing them to different families for nine weeks so bizarre it just wouldn't happen yeah like I, I, it's crazy that like people even said yes, but of course they did. Do you know what I mean? And of course, they, and it was it was a wonderful opportunity. Yeah. And, and I think again, is this something that social media has just sort of polluted us and made us all cynics? I, yeah, I sort of slightly digress, but. I don't think social media and all these things are to blame. I think that, and I'm, I'm stealing someone else's quote, and I can't remember who it is. Um, it's, it's, it's a mirror to society. Oh, you look at, look at the comments section on any story in the news, even the likes of the the, the news Nolan as an example. I think we give. Uh, as I say this with a mic in front of me, we, we give we give we give mics to idiots, um, and we give people a soapbox and they don't deserve one. And I think you only then see the bad bits. You no, know, sensible it. people don't often write supportive comments, but yeah, sort of sometimes mean people and crazy people write lots and write yeah. too much. Yeah, and I think that's what's happening nowadays. But back then, when I was eleven, I mean, your parents are offered. Do you want to go for an all expenses paid trip where your son can go off and see a different part of the world, live with a, a new family, experience yeah. something they've never experienced before for nine weeks? It's like, I was hell yeah. yeah. I was absolutely over. And the then the two things: Do you want nine weeks of free childcare? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mum and dad off the cruise, doing something nice, probably. But, the, but that's it. And then like, I, I took that up. I was. I remember at the time, and that's that's. You know, I talked about earlier on one of my first memories. It's one of my best and most vivid memories. I'll never let go of. I remember being sort of at primary seven in Holy Cross Boys School in North Belfast. And again, you think about opportunity and what you can do with your opportunities. There's 30 kids in that class. Mm. I was just lucky yeah. that I was one of the 10 that was picked out. Yeah. And how different those other 20 kids could have turned out sure. if they had had that opportunity, for example. Because, and again, I appreciate it's how you take the opportunity and what the opportunity is like with you. But for me, leaving Ardoin in the height of all the different troubles and things that were going on and seeing a sort of like a cookie cutter lifestyle, sort mm -hmm. of white, white picket fence, <laughs> just you know, you know, driving your bike and walks along the beach and all these things I've never <laughs> seen before. Um, and I, I did all the usual. I'm not, I'm not sort of, um, I'm not sort of pleading poverty, mum and dad. We went to Spain and did all this sort of the, sure, the traditional yeah, stuff. Yeah. But just seeing a completely different world, an opportunity, and then meeting other people who'd maybe been in that sort of project, who'd been going back and forward to America for four, five, and six years, and just seeing how much they were 
sort of changing. Mm. Even my mum and dad sort of joked they had an American accent by the time I came <laughs> back sort of nine weeks in because you're just embracing it yeah. so much. And I think that made me realise it doesn't really matter where you're from. It's mm. what you do with the opportunity that you're given. Yeah. Um, and also making the the tough decisions. And one of the things that enabled me to do, I mean, I was 16, I did I did quite well in my GCSEs. I got certainly enough to sort of get invited back to St Malachy's. And because I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself and I wasn't having a particularly good time with bullying and, and things like that, I was sort of short fat and the shortest, and one of the shortest in my class. I wasn't fitting in with anybody. I wasn't particularly enjoying what I was doing. And I just decided, you know what, I'm not going to stay on. And mm. if I hadn't have had that experience at 11 to go away and do something completely different. That was what I always look back on to say, well, maybe I could do that and then maybe I could go and do something vocational and then maybe get on a plane and go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I think that gave me the opportunity and I, I do often feel guilty about it as well because I also know quite sort of sadly a lot of guys I went to school with all committed suicide as well in yeah, the class. There was absolutely. a terrible run in North Belfast for quite some time and you can't help but sort of ponder mm-hmm. could it have been different if they had been drawn out of a hat Mate, this is the thing. Uh, yeah. Like, you're absolutely Sorry right. Sorry to get all deep on this, but no, it, it is but, something that but like, I think people aren't grateful <sighs> with the opportunities that present themselves definitely. to them. And I think, like, we are guilty of underestimating, in some regards, the role that our environment and and uh, choices like that yeah. play on us. You know, yeah. it's it's mind-boggling. It, it is, and it, it's one of the most... Un- what, it's, what it's taught me is the, the value of trying to create opportunity for others. And at all times, we're recording this now after the whole sort of the Carlin Flack thing that's came out and these hashtags that are circling about be kind. We shouldn't have to be told mm-hmm. to be kind. And I read on, I was in one of the Northern Irish DJs, Carl Patterson or something. I just seen his tweet this morning where he was talking about he can still remember the words that he was, you know, the names he was called when he was 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Sure. He says, that's 30 years ago. Yeah. He says, that stuff's with me today. Mm-hmm. And I, I can attest to that. And I think anybody can that's been on the receiving end. But I don't think that we realise just the devastating effect it can have to some people. And then if you, like you rightly say, if you then combine that with a negative environment and the lack of opportunity, mm-hmm. I go back to the always two things in perspective. You could be a multimillionaire. You can still be miserable. You can oh, still man. be in a really bad negative space because it's about your surroundings. And I, I don't, I don't any, want anyone to misinterpret the, the sort of the always two things side to be, well, you should be happy because you have everything. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. Yeah. You can entirely be upset. It's you're okay to be upset in your other surroundings, which may be miles apart from somebody else mm-hmm. because it's just the reality of your, sure. your circumstances. Sure. But it is, it's, um, I, I definitely think I was lucky growing up back then and I can say that growing up getting bullied being in the troubles I would still rather have grown up back then Mm -hmm. than what I see people growing up in isn't that interesting man I feel like I'm speaking to like one of the most uh, (laughs) self-aware like like someone who's done a lot of self-work and I like that because I'm fascinated in the self and fascinated in trying to understand myself, fascinated in trying to grow. Well, yeah, the, the, I think the, the mental, the psychological side has always fascinated me as a, as a hobby, as to why so people where, do things. where does that come from? Why? I, I think, honestly, and again, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm beating a drum, but I think it is if you've, if you've had bad bullying or you've had any sort of negative mm. experiences as a kid. You sit as an eleven-year-old thinking, well, "Why don't they like me? Why, why am I not mm. fitting in?" I think it makes you incredibly self-aware. Yeah, and. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure he won't, he won't mind me sort of naming, but one of the guys who I met, um, who's the, the UN cyber chief right hey. now. <laughs> I mean, this guy is the top of his tree, Neil Walsh. Um, I met him in Vienna a couple of weeks ago. Turns out we both went to St. Malachy's. Turns wow. out we both had negative experiences of bullying. Crazy. But actually, 
has that also created that level of self-awareness to be able to say when you're younger, no, the negative things that have happened to me, I'm not going to do that to other people. I think it's a, it's a slippery slope. I think mm-hmm. some people then use it to go and bully others mm-hmm. and things. But I think that's what created that reflection in me. And no, sitting having a coffee with Neil a couple of weeks ago, he had said the same thing. He said mm-hmm. that that's what gave him that drive and ambition to say. And I was invited back to St. Malachy's. It was a nice sort of rounding or squaring of the circle yeah, yeah. I was invited back the hero's to journey you come back come <laughs> back to where you started Nazareth to, <laughs> um, to come back and do the junior prize giving wow and I, I said my sort of my parting line was it doesn't matter what your circumstances are you're here now I think that again the Gary V quote is that 400 million to one that you even exist wow. is the statistic of actually being alive as a human being you're here now you've mm. already got an opportunity and just because you may perceive that you have different shortcomings sort of effort Mm-hmm. And hard work will usually, on the on the on the on the sort of balance of probabilities for me, it'll outwork talent every day of the week. Mm-hmm. I used to want to know why was I not a brilliant footballer? Why wasn't I good? <laughs> boxing was rubbish. And I think I had one boxing match and I came second. Was my uh, way of letting myself down gently. I think I told my mum, yeah, I came second. Yeah. Oh my um, So I was always that sort of the good old sort of journeyman and everything. B's in school or C's, not not quite the A's, not yes. quite the, the F's. I was always just in between, but I always sort of made a conscious decision to say, well, I could maybe, kind of, if I'm honest with myself, kind of work a bit harder, yeah. kind of push on a bit more. Yeah. And that followed me right through. I was training to be a tax inspector. I was delivering Domino's pizzas and I was doing Chinese this on the side because I wanted more money because I wanted to move house. Mm-hmm. Instead of just sitting back and moaning, there's mm-hmm. a car in the driveway. I could just swallow my pride and go out and do a bit of work. Yeah. And that's where I sometimes am. I guess people maybe think I'm harsh when they say, oh, it's not that easy. I'm saying, well, it actually is. I mean, I've yet to go open the job finder and see nothing. Zero. Mm. There's nothing available. It's usually your own pride that dictates whether or not you do other things. Mm-hmm. So and I'm sure there's people all around the world who would give anything for the type of opportunities that we have over here. So that's my sort of sort of long-winded sort of always two things and that there's always a chance. There's always sure. an opportunity. There's always two sides of the story. So I think if I have that, it allows me to have that level of self-awareness because I'm always asking myself yeah. the question, yeah. what else yeah. or what if or what? It's always that, yeah. that question. So you have this real passion and interest in people and psychology mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff. Those are not typically the passions that drive someone into financial services yeah <laughs> so how did that happen and how did you find discover that in the umbrella of tax and you know all that sort of stuff uh, well that that's that's a fair point because i was um i say i left school at 16 i didn't know what i wanted to do one of my friends at the time um had said well look if you don't know what you want to do why don't you go to the next post office or doing mm. these effectively business administration a levels get some practical experience get some money under your belt and my whole thing was always about sort of trying to create my own opportunities back from, uh, I was 11, I went to America. So I thought, right, well, if I Sorry, one second, where'd you go in America? Uh, New York. Okay, cool. It's all, New York. it's all on it. Yeah, in my head, I was like, please get out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in up, upstate New York. And actually, again, I, um, I must have been a good salesman because I convinced the family to bring me back on Boxing Day the same year. <laughs> that was my claim to fame. Actually, all the kids were like, are you going back next year? I was like, nope, I'm going back in six months. Uh. <laughs> I, 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 I charm away in there. Really, um, but I remember um, at the time going to the post office, doing my sort of A-levels through the post office. And at the time, this interest in psychology never sort of left me so I started to do a HND in um, criminology and sort of sociology and behavioural science mm. and a bit of psychology and I was really interested and again I did that as a night class so I was always the one when other people were asking me no you've got to slow down a bit because I was working 9 to 5 then I would do that in the mm-hmm. evenings 
I sort of used to hate being idle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one time a, um, a therapist had said about no, I can't have. I was always a constant state of hyper arousal. <laughs> but some people we were talking about it before the before the show started. It's it's just knowing what what works for you yeah. and having that self awareness to say, are you a sit down, quiet, no distraction type person, or are you busy and in amongst everything? That yeah. sort of the old sort of maven or the connectors. Yeah. Um, so when I started to realise, well, I like being really busy. I like juggling lots and lots of things. And my mum at the time was actually working in, still is, uh, was working for uh, Revenue and Customs, Inland oh, Revenue, nice. tax office at the time. And she had said, you know, get yourself in here. There's a good career ladder and you just don't know where the opportunity will take you um, because you can enter as an administrative assistant and then the world's your oyster. And I thought, you know what, that for me is enough of a decision because it's a broad enough scope. I have no idea what I'm good at. I'll just chuck myself into it. Um, and I get in as an AA, as they call it, and then an opportunity come up. And then there was this little slow progressive steps. Wow. But as I was getting busier and having to travel more, I had to drop the sociology, which really, or the, and the sort of behavioral psychology, sure. which pained me because I really enjoyed that. So then but, you just married a, a therapist instead. <laughs> much many more steps in between before I got to that. Um, but yeah, I was, I was always, always going to be a project for somebody. Um, but then I got the opportunity to there was a, a fast stream um, program in revenue and customs that again I thought damn it I haven't got a degree everything mm-hmm. I looked at you needed to have a degree to enter and that used to really irk me because I thought what's a degree in history or geography got to do with my ability to be a potential tax inspector Honestly, but luckily and again I go back to sort of good fortune and being at the right place at the right time I don't, I'm not a big believer in sort of that there's some sort of grand plan necessary but what I believe is that there is a continual series of opportunities that Mm. may fall your way and I got very very lucky that at the exact year I was going for it HMRC dropped the requirement to have a degree and they said if you're an internal applicant you just have to pass the internal test so I did that I was uh, was one of quite a few many. I was successful. I got onto that fast stream program. So that then, uh, or the inspector training program it was called and I got to then work in different parts uh, and train to be a tax inspector uh, did that for a couple of years and that then eventually led me to an opening that was a new team was being set up to work in criminal investigation and a financial investigator effectively a type of job where you could basically go after bad guys <laughs> and their assets were being taken off and I love that it's like sheriff justice yeah, well, it was like, and I have to be honest there was like the 11 year old bullied kid inside me was like I'll show you big stockbroker so there was always that bit of a challenge I mean I sort of thought I would love to be wielding that sword and, yes. and I had this really um, fortunate sort of title that and again it's not that's not down to my own credit it's because I didn't do my A-levels I'd love to say I was no some no brilliant tax inspector and I was the youngest in, uh, I was the youngest in the, in the UK I think at one point oh wow uh, but it was also because I'm very honest I'll, I'll declare it because I didn't go to university sure yeah I was already at head start Absolutely, so anyone yeah. joining me was they were joining at 20 and 22 I was 19 um, so it meant but I also tried to use that to my advantage and I, I'll never forget one of the first tax investigations um, I led into and a big sort of sort of um, like a rugby builder type guy in his 50s. He was in with his accountant in Armagh, Armagh somewhere. And there's me sitting down, 19, sort of in a suit from Primark, and um, <laughs> shaking now. And the, the, the accountant just opened with, are you here on some sort of like no youth training uh, program, the old YTP? And I was like, no. Are you doing a wee internship, son? <laughs> I was like, I'll have you know I'm a tax inspector type of thing. Um, but again, I actually enjoyed that sort of going in under the radar and mm. I sort of tried to start embracing that then. And it's almost like if you remember the movie... Um, uh, Dustin Hoffman in Sleepers mm-hmm. where he's the bumbling sort of lawyer and dropping his papers and just leading them down a path I would often do that and go in with a bit of a bit of charm and oh, I have no idea how your industry works and 
and then in the end they would try and run circles around you but actually we had very good systems and good people with us at all times in those sort of meetings and it was very easy then to sort of let someone talk a lot uh, uh, pot calling the kettle black here uh, and let someone talk <laughs> a lot and eventually the truths will always sort yeah. of come out yeah. um, and then I was taught one of my sort of my tutors a guy called Gary Forbes um, Gary was then the one to say no keep going keep going keep going and then stop and leave the uncomfortable silence and you'll find and it is the only negotiating thing here for talks next loses we weren't selling anything but you were trying to get someone to sort of put their hands up and see if everyone can through a long protracted process and even those little tools and again that always brought me right back to at night time that I was still reading the psychology books mm. it was always fascinating why does the mind work that way you know, yeah. why does someone do these things um, just human behaviour um, sort of always fascinated me so that's what that's what sort of brought me into that world then I was in criminal investigation um, and that got me in amongst assets and I was the one then effectively involved in seizing the assets mm -hmm. so I then logically made that progression I worked in insolvency for a couple of years uh, and I was then just always in and around assets so then the opportunity came up to move to Wilson's who had just sort of secured a nice big raft of sort of government contracts and proceeds of crime they didn't have particularly um, people who were experienced in that field from the client side um, and literally again opportunities I had instructed uh, Wilson's on a job wow. when my previous job Bumped into one of their managers at the time who was leaving because I think his wife had a job in Gibraltar and he was leaving. They were advertising for a vacancy and he said, God, you should go and have a coffee and meet the guys. Mm. I think with what you used to do and the contracts they currently have, that could be a great opportunity for both of you. Wow. And again, uh, a random chance coffee. So now I'm looking at my six year uh, anniversary now. Wow. So yeah, again, they've all, things have fortunately fallen um, in the right time, I think, for yeah. me. Amazing. So break it down for me and help me understand what does asset recovery actually mean? What does it do? Like, what sort of stuff are you seizing? Where does the money go? Who buys the stuff? Like, just asset recovery 101, mate. Yeah. So pretty much what happens, the word asset recovery is, is almost a terrible terminology because it's used around the world for lots of different things. Yeah. Americans call it asset recovery when someone wipes your hard drive and they take <laughs> your computer away. Um, in the legal terms, it's all about the legal action around you know, getting someone's house or a complicated asset. We settled on the term because it was sort of benign enough that it would fit within the, if you remember um, right back, the um, I can't remember the year, whether it was 2010 or 2009, the Asset Recovery Agency was set up uh, in the UK and it was all about you know, the Al Capone effect, you know, taking, mm -hmm. taking assets off bad guys. So Asset Recovery for us was a, was a logical um, title. And basically the entire spectrum of asset recovery is usually someone's involved in a doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Let's just say whether it's criminal or civil or how it's investigated, it doesn't really matter at this stage. They've done something wrong. The, the investigating agency is able to demonstrate that not only were you doing something illegal, um, something like dealing drugs, you were making a profit out of that. Mm. So if your house has nice things and you've got a car and you've got all of these assets and you can't prove that you had a legitimate income to back that up, yeah. then the legislation allows government agencies to say, well, actually, we think you must have been earning 200 grand a year in your illegal activities to afford the boat, the car and the yeah. overseas holidays. So they effectively do a bit of a calculation and give the person a debt. Basically, oh, wow. so that monetary debt. So you could be, you could go to prison for ten years, and then also have this large debt. And if you don't pay the debt, you get a longer prison sentence. Okay. So the important difference between that and say a bailiff, whereas that's specifically a debt around an asset or an action, yeah. and you're taking that asset back yeah. as almost as a ransom note, effectively. It means that our world is a bit, I don't want to say easier, but it's certainly not as contentious as people would think. Yeah. Because nine times out of 10, 
we're the impartial asset manager yeah, in yeah, the yeah. middle. I mean, someone's looking at a 10-year prison sentence and if they don't sell their assets, they could get another 10 years. Wow. So quite often they're coming to us saying, yeah. bloody sell this yes. quickly. I have until the 1st yeah, of April. Yeah. And here's the logbook for the car. And yeah. this and that. So I think when people hear about ill-gotten gains and they think of all these things, they think of the can't pay, take it away. And mm-hmm. someone, uh, it's very quite contentious. And oh, if I buy this, is it a dangerous asset? The asset's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. It's the questionable methods the person used to generate an yeah, income yeah, yeah, yeah. to buy the asset. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty much it. And so our involvement is to take that asset when it's seized, we'll do some valuations on it, we'll possibly store it. And then when the time is right and when the court says so or the person gives us permission, we then put it to auction. And that's then the fun side of the business mm. effectively because you're tasked with effectively organizing an event. It could be just an <laughs> online auction. Um, and it's also important to sort of point out that there's, I mean, Wilson's now 150,000 odd cars a year. Wow. This is one small small part yes. of the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the asset recovery department almost acts as the, the translator to mm-hmm. the rest of the auction business mm-hmm. um, because we have a team of ex-law enforcement guys and girls and uh, security clearance, all the things you'd imagine with handling government assets. But it means that a, a government agency can say, we have a car, sell it. We have a house, sell it. And nice. now we have a Bitcoin or a crypto <laughs> asset is the, the new sort of straightforward asset we deal with. So it doesn't really matter. And that's why the asset recovery is quite a sort of benign title because it is any asset. Yeah. So it's our, and then when you look at the recovery, instead of thinking of the tow truck, think of almost recovering the money out of that asset yeah. because the government can't give victims, you know, designer trainers and permits yeah. belt and a, and a car they want money. 100%. So it's for us really to convert that asset and get the highest possible price. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I said at the beginning. That's the, the really rewarding part for me. Going back to the boy from Ardoin, mm-hmm. any sort of local community groups and different things, they're funded out of the money raised in proceeds of crime sales. Amazing. Those funds. So there's a nice sort of sort of, sort of, of full circle there that we can see. Actually, we did a sale recently in, in Wales where the money um, was awarded to a local boxing gym. Wow. And all the kids came down to watch the auction. So oh, Cheering on the items being sold because they're getting, <laughs> they know they're going to benefit from that's the sale. Brilliant. Um, and then you also get the serious side as well where we've had, um, we did a show for ITV, sort of police camera auction, and it was sort of tracking the, the world of proceeds of crime assets. And the producers didn't tell us at the time, um, just literally as the auction was about to start up in our headquarters in Molusk, and uh, they said, oh, that lady in the front coat, uh, in the front uh, front row, sorry, in the red jacket, yeah, she's the, the victim of these multi-million pound fraudsters, and wow. whatever you raise tonight is directly going back to her. Because the court can set an order to compensate a victim mm-hmm. in a fraud case. Like, she's in the front row, and the cameras, no pressure <laughs> for us to now sell this like, collection of Patek Philippe watches but I think it's quite good for for me obviously I have a bit of hindsight with it because of my previous role mm-hmm. but I think for other people just thinking that we just you know, get to sell shiny assets and yeah, it's a bit yeah, of fun yeah, yeah. there is that pressure there as well because you do realise this is going to affect mm-hmm. I mean if I found out my father lost you no know, life savings in some sort of fraud and all of a sudden you know, some random auctioneer was turning up to not really try too hard and just sell the asset yeah, 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 there's yeah. your check yeah. so it keeps everybody in, in sort of the organisation really motivated yeah. to make sure and I do a series of talks around the where we travel around the world now and it's all about making crime pay mm. and it's a it's almost a, a misnomer because for years the governments were saying we have to take the profits out of crime we must make sure that crime doesn't pay yes the reality is it does yeah the reality is criminals are making tens of millions of pounds yeah the UK fraud figure is 163 billion per year is the fraud figure so we're saying look let's not be an idealist about this the system isn't perfect yeah 
Lots of people get away with it. Yeah. So if we can make sure that on the cases where we do have assets, we can get as much as we can for victims back. That's why we say, let's say, let's try and make crime pay for yeah. what it's done. So that's why we try and, and again, that goes back to the, the two things side of it. Of look, let's be a realist. I'd yeah, love, yeah, yeah. I'd love to wax lyrical and say, yes, we're going to get every single penny back and every crime can be stopped and every asset can be sold. <laughs> it can't. So we just need to try and do the best yeah. with what we, what we have. Yeah. Uh, talk to me for a bit about your skill as an auctioneer. Because it's quite a niche thing. There's Someone not, say what skill? <laughs> <laughs> like, there's not too many people are auctioneers. Like, what have you found over the years works? Like, have you found certain strategies, certain technique that actually en- enables you to get the most value out of an item, whether it's for yeah. private or whether it's for you know um, good causes? If you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it is. It's a fair point, and it's something I get to. Uh, I don't get to do as often nowadays, but I get to do a lot of charity auctions as well as the auctions. And the, the auction story sort of is an interesting one for me because I never joined Wilson's to be an auctioneer. Mm. I was an ex-tax inspector. Um, I was there to sort of work with government contracts and do the sort of the grey and um, sort of behind the scenes stuff and sort of work with the clients. And it was actually, um, it's a bit of a proven ground in terms of Wilson's are quite unique because we still have a series of live auctions. A lot of auction companies have moved to just online only. Um, and I think it's it's quite right that the, the sort of owners have never came away from mm. physical. Physical plus online, but physical auctions is where you still get that auction fever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, if we said tomorrow a Banksy is going for auction, yeah. you wouldn't think it's in an online. You would know it's in a room yeah, somewhere you because you want those multi-millionaires eyeballing each other and going into the <laughs> item. So we try and recreate that and have both sides. And one one day I was, one random Tuesday evening, um, the, the usual sort of uh, liquidation and disposal seal was on. And I was asked, did I want to get involved and try a couple of lots? Because every auction company needs auctioneers. And I was already given presentations mm-hmm. for the company. So I was used to speaking anyway. Mm-hmm. I was used to speaking in court or, or doing things like that. So I said, well, no. How hard can it be? For God's sake, you're standing <laughs> It is harder than anything I've I ever done. I think it would be so hard. Oh, you have no idea. Be, you forget how to count. Because you, all of a sudden, you've got a mic on you. You're told straight away, everything you say is being broadcast online. Yes. You can't stop. It's like a radio DJ. There can't be silence yeah. either. There has to be a bit of momentum. And then when you realise, when you're sitting at sort of um, 700, 800, 900, t- oh, it's not 10 hundred, it's 1,000. <laughs> These things that because you're trying to watch someone's bed, you're trying to look, sure. you're trying to watch the TV screen, you're trying to see people put their hands in the air, you're trying to remember what number you're at. Yeah. And then you can't just keep saying 800, 800, 800. Yeah. You have to use different words. But because I was sort of dropped in at the deep end, I think I actually got up to do a couple of lots. And the chap who was with me... Um, I think Reese was wasn't well, or he was at a point he, he, he was stuck in traffic. There was some reason he couldn't sort of uh, come and sort of take over and rescue me mm. as this inexperienced auctioneer. So I ended up having to stay on wow. and do like a hundred lots in a row, baptized with fire. Absolutely, so you're sort of <laughs> chucking the deep, and, and, and I advocate to people just get up there and have a go and, nice. and just and do it. But then you're also reminded these are also government assets, and you can't really get this wrong. Or you're sort yeah, of yeah, your heads yeah, yeah. on the, your your necks on the line. <laughs> um, so once I did that the first time, I made a conscious decision to say, well, for me. Uh, before I joined Wilson's, I'd never been inside an auction house, mm. ever, let alone even Wilson's. And one of my sort of criticisms was is that the perception of the like the cattle auctions and that sort of repetitive. And I always thought that if we really want new people to be coming and bidding and not intimidated, I know if I went to an auction traditionally and I had someone sort of screaming at me and I didn't understand a word they were saying, I'm not going to put my hand up. Yeah. I'm not going to bid. I'm not going to take part. And why are so many people using online auctions? Yes. Because of the calm pace and the ability to digest the information that's in front of them. Yeah. So we sort of thought, is there a way we can blend that by having particularly these government assets, particularly because of victims as well? It's a bit insensitive. I, I wouldn't want to get up and just, you know, 
to be a bit too sort of casual with the whole thing. So we sort of, I, I, me personally as well, in my own auctioneering style, I made a very conscious decision to say, no, I'm going to make this as clear and decipherable mm. as possible. Try and pick up the pace where I can, but I'll make it quite clear. No, we're currently bid at £13,000. Do you want to bid 13500 And give them a bit of chance <laughs> to actually say, as opposed to the... Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it works for some, and I understand if you're selling 600 of the same thing, or you're in a big car auction where it's just you no know, 27 Ford Fiestas after one another, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you can't really go for the same thing over and over again. So I think it's different horses for different courses. I think we're in a very lucky position from an asset recovery point of view because we sell these weird and wonderful items. Mm. You can take your time, and all you have to do is go onto YouTube and see what do they do when they're selling a Banksy. Yeah. I mean, or anything like that. They, don't, they take their time. Yeah. When someone's buying a house for a million pounds, you, you're not trying to rush them yeah. through. It's the exact opposite. And again, I go back to the what we we're talking about—the old sort of like settlement negotiation with HMRC. Many a time, the bid's been at ten thousand pounds, and we'll just stop, and everything goes quiet. And the person who was previously bidding, you're saying, "Are you bidding ten thousand five hundred?" And everything goes quiet, and you see all the heads in the room look at the person they're bidding, and they're and they don't know. So sometimes you can just deploy that. Yes. You know, get your head in the game. Are you bidding or not? And then you get the other, the funny side of it as well, because our auctions are unreserved. It means that there's no minimum price wow. on the government stuff so you can't get a bargain if yeah. you keep your wits about you but you get the guys who'll come up with a sort of the girl on the arm and you know, I'm coming to buy everything tonight I'm yeah. buying all the Rolexes in yeah, the auction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the Rolexes were £10,000 and at £500 they're waving like mad yeah. and they're sort of you know, gesturing and, oh, he's not taking my bid I wait and come back to those guys at, uh, at £10,000 <laughs> you bidding now and they're all of a sudden shrinking violets <laughs> and stuff like that so we, we, can, we can sort of tease and have a bit of fun with, it, with that, those types of auctions but yeah, I think for me it's, it's important and it's something I try and what I'm sharing with anybody else who's starting auctioneering or maybe asking to do things a bit different. I always say, just back to my perspective, put yourself in the position of someone who doesn't understand the auction business. Mm. You're already in quite a intimidating environment. You don't mm. want to make a mistake. You don't want to do something. Sometimes you have to sort of hold them by the hand and just say, come on, no, it's 10,500 if you want to bid now. Yeah. What do you want to do? And sometimes it's no. Okay. And then you can pick up the pace somewhere else. So yeah. I think it's important to remember that there's a, we're all just basically anxious apes on the, on the grand scheme of things. Sure. So as long as you just sort of listen to that and say, because you know, there is many, many times I've seen other sort of auctioneers on TV as well and that sort of a big multi-million pound sales around the world where they're just blasting on past people and not, mm. and you sort of think if they stop that person, I think they would have went again or went again or yeah. went again. You have to give people that opportunity. So I do, I do miss the fact that because of a travel schedule and different commitments and just the amount of stuff we have on, um, that I'm not able to do, uh, do it as often yeah. uh, as I did. Um, because for me, that is probably the most fun part of the job, yeah. actually standing up there and you do, you're, you're the, sort of the great orator, you're standing up there, you've got everybody <laughs> listening, everyone looking at you. Uh, for me, it's just, it's, it's refined karaoke, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, you sent through was one of your greatest passions in life. Yeah, it doesn't mean I'm good at it, but it's definitely, definitely a secret passion. Yeah. So good. Um, really, really simple question. Just like like a really short one. Like, where do you actually go to these auctions? Like, where actually is the auction house? Oh, so Wilson's auction. Our headquarters is in Belfast, but we're we're actually we're we're quite spread across the map now. We've eighteen dots across the map. Um, but like I say, a lot of our stuff is also sold online. But mm. like I say, we're um, it's one of the I think definitely one of our me personally one of our proudest achievements is that company with headquarters in Belfast with a you know, traditionally 70 or 80% of our, our workforce is manual 
know, guys out in the yard moving cars, doing all of the good sort of old fashioned sort of graft work. Yeah. There's only a, sort of a few of us in the in the sort of and yeah. you know dressed in the, in the suits and things. The other guys that sort of power and sort of machine everything through. So it's nice for customers as well that they can still walk in and see the people, talk to the staff. Mm-hmm. Still all very very accessible. So in Northern Ireland, we've got places in um, in, in Moluscan Portadown, and then in, in Dublin, cool. uh, further on down the road. And then it is that still family business vibe to and it is it's the customer service element uh, I know that sort of Ian Wilson regularly sort of points out you know treat it like it's your own mm. that's the simplest bit of training you'll ever get in yeah. Wilson's how would you like it sold if I'm selling your car you know, should it be cleaned should it be properly described what would you be looking for if you were putting that advert in the paper or yeah. online yourself and if that's your if that's your barometer and that's where you start with everything or is your benchmark sorry um, it's an easy it's an easy yeah. thing to figure out yeah um, talk to me about some of the stuff you've sold. I mean, I suppose there's different categories. There's the really expensive things. Yeah. There's the really weird mm-hmm. things. And then there's just the wee random bits in between. Well, uh, for the for the benefit of not sort of killing your listeners off, um, we'll keep Bitcoin towards the end because you could lose someone on that. We'll <laughs> come back to Bitcoin and crypto assets. But in terms of the sort of the, the weird and wonderful items, like obviously there's the multi-million pound properties, you have the big headlines with stuff like that. But is it that interesting? It's a big yeah, house, for example. Yeah. Um, I think what gets the headlines in, in terms of the press are those weird and wonderful and quirky items. Um, just a couple of years ago, um, it's undoubtedly some of the biggest exposure we've ever got globally in terms of press was around a sci-fi auction. And the the backstory to this is, is like something out of Breaking Bad <laughs> where there was a, a chap. Um, actually, the story goes that um, it was one of the storms, quite fittingly, we're just off the back of Storm Dennis. It's one of the storms in England. And um, I was in Southampton Airport. My flight was just cancelled and I just got a phone call from a police officer um, to say, we just came across a massive, massive job we could do with some of your guys coming out to give us a hand and just get some advice. Um, I says, right, okay, well, what, are we, what are we looking at? And this is there's a lot of memorabilia, a lot of sci-fi stuff as well and then um, <laughs> do you do live animals <laughs> you're like that is a strange sentence I'm like uh, yeah no, we've had quite a long history we sold um, Utopia U- Utopia won the gold medal in the Olympics in 2012 for, for dressage for example so I was like wow. yeah God, we've sold some really high profile um, animals and cattle and livestock and they're like no I'm sort of thinking like wallabies and monkeys like, oh what? my goodness and says, yeah, yeah, that and sort of, you know, like a, you're just, just your average sort of like seven foot you know, Gene Wilder and Terminator statues. And, are you, and I thought it was a wind up at one point. And she said, no, no, you have to see this to believe it. Whoa. So my flight was cancelled. It was quite fortunate. So we normally have these like recovery operators all around the country that were already going to meet us um, at, the, <laughs> at the scene with the search warrant. Um, and what had happened was a gentleman in England, and it's all, it's all, it's all public record and it's all in the public domain for a couple of years, but a gentleman in England had... Um, Purchased or leased a underground, disused nuclear bunker. So he had this idea of turning turning it into like a comic book store because yeah. he was massive collectible in the sci fi assets and all these different things. Uh, like one of his crowning glories was the actual screen used vehicle from Back to the Future Two. So Biff's hover car. Um, so he had all of these assets. Oh my goodness, it's mad! But he also then got a knock on the door, and this is where the Breaking Bad thing kicks in. He always got a, the story goes that he got a knock on the door um, by a couple of chaps who wanted to use his underground bunker of for course. other activities. Of um, course, and that all. So allegedly uh, included um, growing lots and lots of cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened then was over a period of months, these uh, underground farms are starting to appear in this disused, or sorry, in this abandoned nuclear bunker. And um, 
So what was happening was then our, our chap who was involved in all of this, he was the one then that was obviously receiving a handsome payment um, for renting out his uh-huh. uh, and obviously assisting these guys. I don't know to what, to what extent, but he was receiving money. But on the other side of it, he doesn't appear to have been as sort of switched on because he at the same time was buying all of these ridiculously flamboyant assets. Mm. Um, but contacting the press to tell the press oh, that he had these assets. No. So he had a bit of an addiction with being on the, the Daily Mail. Sure, no, sure. No, girlfriend fumes at man because he has 50 foot alien statue <laughs> and he's in the front of the Daily Mail. And you start to see, so the, so the police put two and two together going, where's this guy? He spent like 50 grand on eBay this month if yeah. you read through his story. Yeah. And of course with eBay you can go and search someone's username and you can find... So this story started to come together and then sort of sort of fast forward then that um, that stormy evening that we get drafted into his property. And um, like I say, people don't, a lot of people don't realise Wilson's involvement is much more extensive than you would think. In some mm. cases, we're brought in as like specialist removal mm-hmm. advisors. We're actually there in properties. And um, I just happened to be there because my flight was cancelled. So again, <laughs> opportunity. And uh, we went on scene and I remember walking up and seeing what looked like a sort of the, the top of a circus tent. This is someone's property. And at the back, they had this like Ripley's Believe It or Not with all of these assets, all of his collectibles, right into the living room itself where he had all of the arcade games break down to like Pac-Man and Paperboy. He had um, seven foot tall sort of uh, Star Wars characters, Gene Wilder from Willy Wonka um, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And just this... What looked like a, like a Madame Tussauds of assets. Yeah. Then you hear the screeching and think, what the hell is that? Capuchin <laughs> monkeys in the kitchen, locked in a cage, wallabies roaming the grounds. This guy was just buying everything and anything he could set his hands on. But if we go right back to the beginning, if he's involved in illegal activity, uh, and he yeah. purchases assets, uh-huh. those assets and then have to get sold yeah. to settle his debt. Yeah. So then it falls to Wilson's auctions to sort of coordinate catalogue and sell all of these assets. Now, obviously, the, the monkeys and the animals got rehoused with them, um, sort of under very specific arts. Where do you even buy a monkey these days? Exactly. No, you can't buy them. They had to, get, they had to go to an animal shelter. Um, so we then had the job of moving all this stuff. It actually all got brought back to Molusk in our head office. And you can Google it, just Google Wilson's auction, That's sci-fi mad. auction. And the place was rammed, as you can imagine, because we had like the original Pac-Man. Like Those arcade games are anything from five to £7,000 per arcade game. Like 25 of them of all the different types um, we had the car from Back to the Future I can't 2 get over that. we had virtually every replica car you can imagine how funny that it came back to Belfast brilliant do you and, know what I mean and that's, 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 that's kind of interesting thing. and again it goes back to the, the sort of the, the 11 year old boy but you can kind of do anything you want yeah. with enough sort of application and, and, and also I'm very conscious of an opportunity falling your way yeah. so if like I say Wilson's Auctions now has been able to establish itself as a sort of a world leader in sort of an, an asset recovery that's why we're entrusted with these assets Think of all the different places in the UK or Europe or the world that they could go to sell Biff's car from Back to the Future 2 <laughs> or a, a plane that's been filled with cocaine and we're selling the aircraft or a 500-ton yeah. cargo vessel. It's Wilson's that get these instructions. Um, so it's a credit to the guys and girls who have been there sort of doing it for years. Um, so I get to now sort of be the sort of face of that in terms of the TV work that we're doing. And I had the great pleasure of actually being able to stand up and auction and sell all of those items. And Unreal. you can imagine it's a very easy press release. Yes. Then and our, our PR marketing guys are You just bullet point it. It's like the best auction. All the cheesy headlines and all the force be with you and all these things we had on. Um, and it's even then coming up with novel ways to advertise it. Yeah. So if you're selling that type of stuff or if you're selling sci-fi memorabilia, 
We actually sold in a previous auction, um, Beam Me Up Scotty. <laughs> Jimmy Goonan, we sold Scotty's actual jacket. Oh, my that goodness. That was from somebody. So how do you sell? And, and Whoopi Goldberg's outfits from uh, from Star Trek. And how do you advertise that? We go to Comic-Con. So we sent our guys and girls along to Comic-Con, had a stand set up Mate, to advertise genius. the auction. So it's just about whatever the asset is. Try and buy it in reverse and then work backwards. Wow. So people say, how do you, how do you know how to sell Bitcoins or a Bentley or anything else? Well, go and try and buy it and yeah. then sort of replicate those market conditions and just sort of, you'll, it's the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. Yeah. Um, and I always remember sort of um, our, our, our director, sort of Ian Wilson and, and Peter Johnson, always talking about the fact that everyone used to say, oh, we can't do that or we can't do mm-hmm. that. And they would always say, people will come to buy it. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. If, they, if you create the demand and find the buyer base, doesn't matter where it is. Crazy. And uh, now you see the advancement of that in Amazon, eBay purchases. Now, do you stop and check where it's? I mean, mm. when I'm ordering something on Amazon Prime, I couldn't give a damn where it's coming from in the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's if it's going to be here tomorrow, it's going to be here tomorrow. Yeah, I yeah, say, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm not going to buy that because it's French. I'm going to buy yeah. this one because it's German. Yeah. I think if you just make it convenient for the customer, so I think where where the company's done really well is being able to bridge that gap between these really complicated government assets mm-hmm. and availability. To a marketplace, so good. And uh, like I say, this is that for me that that's definitely probably the most standout auction we've ever been involved in, um, just in terms of sheer weirdness. <laughs> I mean, how, how do you get a valuer to give you a second opinion on you know, Biff's car from oh Back to the Future goodness. Two? What sort of money did it go for? Twenty five thousand pounds. That's wow. sold for, and again shipped off to America um, somewhere, and right down to Gremlins that were used on set. And, <laughs> yeah. I have no idea. Just a very, very weird, wonderful set. So things like that, right through to the James Bond style gold bars, the twelve and a half kilo gold bricks. And you think on a a rainy mollusk night on a Thursday, random Thursday evening, you're selling a two hundred and seventy thousand pounds gold bar. That's gold billion. um, To the I just can't even imagine how he got it. All that stuff to his house. Oh, you, do you know what I mean? Like, it, I mean, that's that's just mind-boggling. The, 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 when you actually read the story online as well, you'll find that the house was rented. So the poor landlord, what? he got this five-bedroom detached sort of like bit of farmland in the, in the countryside in Wiltshire. When you see the, the you know, monkeys were literally living in the utility room. So um, I don't think he had that declared on his lease either. So <laughs> made, made a one hell of a cleanup job to do on the property. But they're the sort of cases that, um, from a serious point of view as well, they also demonstrate an ability to do a yes. particular job. I mean, if you 100%. can handle that sort of stuff, yeah. you can take the straightforward Rolexes sure. and paintings yeah. and, and different and, things. I mean, how, how did you guys handle something as, particularly in, at that time, new and unknown and cyber as Bitcoin? Well, we, we use the sci-fi case as an example of always, you know, you can sell anything if you just surround yourself with the right people mm. and target the right market, I mean, it's not. It isn't rocket science. It is. It is straightforward. You can just create a demand and, f- and find your find your audience and your demographic. And um, I think where a lot of auction companies make a mistake is they just try and sell it exactly the same way they sell everything else, and then yeah. wonder why it falls down. So when we were contracted with these government contracts to sell seized assets, well, obviously the evolution of assets is now they're seizing crypto assets. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a huge advocate of cryptocurrency. I'm a huge advocate of blockchain technology. It is the next sort of great frontier. Um, and you're going to be buying your house in 10 years' time. You'll not have a convincing solicitor in the common way. It'll be done through blockchain. Yeah. So it's a wonderful piece of technology. And I think the crypto assets get a bad name yeah. because they're used in illegal activity. Yeah, of course. Cash is used in more illegal activity than 100. anything else in the world. Yeah. Um, 
it's just that the banks don't like the fact that they don't get a fee for crypto assets. So, And right now, the criminals, like all things, they've jumped on it first because mm-hmm. they're aware that law enforcement weren't really as caught up and banks weren't reporting suspicious transactions, all these sorts of things. So crypto assets became an easy way for people to deal with um, illegal assets. So we were approached by one of our clients um, two, three years ago to say, look, we have a seizure coming up. We know you do the watches and the cars and everything else, but um, we're all we're seizing his house, but we also believe he has crypto assets. Can you look into that for us? So what then began was a sort of series, nearly a year of toing and froing of, right, how do we buy Bitcoins if we wanted to buy them today? If mm-hmm. we were buying them, how would I then realize them and turn them into cash? What mm-hmm. are the options out there? And just doing lots of market research to be able to figure out, you know, what do people like? What are they not like? Yeah. We don't want to replicate the same thing. Uh, we don't do something that's already been done poorly. Um, but also we have to acknowledge that we're not, uh, no sort of a Silicon Valley tech company sure. that are going to do things. So again, we always go back to keep it simple. If you want to sell it to a mass market, what do the mass market need? It needs to be easy, transparent, accessible, mm-hmm. and sort of quite clear as to what they're doing. So we went to the insurers, got ourselves an insurance policy because we said we're going to keep it very simple. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to build an online virtual repository yes. of crypto assets. All crypto assets are underpinned um, by what's called cold storage, mm-hmm. which is just a way of manually keeping the keys of the kingdom literally printed and in a safe. Yeah, It's like printing out a backup to your online bank password. Yes. So if you keep that password locked in a safe, it's not available online yeah. for any hackers to get it. Yeah. So in, if anyone's listening who knows crypto assets, now they'll be banging their, banging their head off the speaker. Um, <laughs> that's a ridiculously simplified way of looking at it. But if you imagine by having that conventional way, the insurers are always of the opinion, well, if you've already got a security structure in place to hold gold, for example, or a Rolex, well, then you can do the same with crypto yeah, assets. Sure. Um, and that actually then, when the Belgian government were one of the first government agencies to look to the private sector to ask for assistance with crypto assets, that's what won us the tender. Up against all of these tech companies, it was our ability to demonstrate we've actually got experience in managing seized assets and selling seized assets for the highest value. So nice. a few things like the, well, give us an example of a weird asset you've sold. <laughs> how many do you want type of thing yeah. whereas other tech companies maybe in a startup sphere weren't able to demonstrate those credentials of managing government assets so we always keep saying the same thing about just keep it simple if your involvement in that sphere is storing and selling mm-hmm. well then I don't need a degree in sort of physics yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need to be <laughs> sort of a, I know a forex trader I need to know all of the ins and outs of the crypto yeah. market I need to know what it's worth today with market research. I need to know how I target the widest audience. And our guys, sort of a shout out to our marketing guys who just been nominated for another award, actually with um, with Digital DNA, for their sort of marketing campaign around crypto assets um, that saw our PR reach exceed one billion uh, in terms of just getting the right story out there. And then we were seeing our name popping up in the the New York Times and the Washington Post and Australia uh, and um, Sydney and Melbourne because it's just it's an interesting story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a lot of auction companies only did that after the auction was over. Right. Do it in advance. Get, get bums on seats because the minute you put the press release out, you can even see when a press release hits um, one of the big sort of. Uh, okay, a local uh, auction for example if we're selling proceeds of crime assets in Wales and we do something in the Welsh press and the Liverpool press like literally the website slows down because you can see everyone's now going what there's a big auction tonight wow. and they log in so just simple adjustments like that which is what sort of the, the marketing guys were, yeah. um, were recommending to say like let's do this a bit different so from our point of view it's actually very very simplified in terms of it's another seized asset with complexities Yeah, I would much rather have the problems of a bitcoin than a horse. Sure. Bite me or die, go lame or anything else. So I take Bitcoins any day of the week. So good.
just call on Aiden here. He says there's been some updates. May want to include it in the episode. Hello. Aiden, mate. Can you hear me? I can indeed. Deadly. So where are you? Are you stuck in the airport or what are you at? Uh, yeah, I've just uh, just arrived back into Belfast from Bristol, and it was like uh, something out of twenty eight days later. Just walking through a sort of eerily quiet airport, all the public <laughs> eating things are closed, car park empty. Uh, it's it's an unusual experience. But then you get onto the flight, and you're sitting in a row of three, elbow to elbow. Oh uh, no, you still seriously? People. Yeah. So I don't know why the airlines really aren't even sort of allocating their seating and just putting you sort of A and C. D and F type of thing. Even that would logically be a, be an improvement. Um, Mate, the airlines are struggling, but we're living in in really really crazy times. I was thinking about you the other day actually because I was like, "Mate, this guy's never off a plane." I wonder if half of his flights are even still running anymore. Well, uh, yeah, I can tell you now that um, I mean the next four months of uh, four months of events for me have just been wiped out. I mean, my I wow. was meant to be next week. I was a week in Sarajevo week after that I was meant to be in or two weeks after that I was meant to be in New Delhi two weeks after that I was meant to be in um, Jersey and Guernsey and every one of them right through to even as far as in, in advance my events I'm speaking at well due to speak at World Gold Day in the Basel Institute in Switzerland that's the end of May that's already cancelled wow that stuff in June that's already cancelled so people are really that's sort of planning for the, <gasps> the long haul with it sure. so all the things you hear about the government you know, 10, 12, 14 weeks it, it looks that way I mean, yeah. it is going to be yeah. well I, I think, think they're just I think they're just drifting it out you know, a week at a time and it, yeah. it just blow people it blow people's mind if they say right you know, you're planning for 16 weeks yeah 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 crazy well this is the first ever this is the first time I've ever retrofitted uh, a, a, a future conversation into a podcast never mind over the phone so i'm, I'm, uh, always, I'm always a man for first <laughs> it's actually good you know what it, it forces me to try and do new things so uh no this is great so basically i mean uh you sent me a text there you said that there's been big changes obviously a lot of that's uh covid driven but just i mean fill us in what do we need to know that the, the previous you the past you a couple of months ago that i didn't know well, this is it. It's it's one of those things, and it's been always in the back of my mind. From uh, something we, we talked about extensively was this sort of drive to sort of keep doing things and always trying to sort of punch above our weight uh, as a as a as a city, as a country, and it's something I've always taken with me. And I've I've been working for the last couple of years with um, based on all the good work we've done at Wilson's um, and sort of setting best practice in asset management, and that means that I've got a bit of a profile now that I'm able to go and work around the world and share the good experiences I've had with Wilson's. Uh, and that's now led to an opportunity to work with the UN, work with intergovernmental agencies, and actually sort of help shape the future legislation around asset management and asset recovery worldwide. So that means I'll actually be sort of taking the leap uh, and effectively sort of stepping away from Wilson's to sort of be my own, uh, be my own boss to sort of set up this sort of training and consultancy Crazy. business that's going to it's going to share what we've done in, in wilson's but um i'll still have a great relationship with the guys i'll still be working with them as a, as a consultant but the sort of the draw to go and really be be part of something and also fly the flag i mean i was sitting at a at a conference just a, a couple of days ago and i'm one of the the three speakers it was the international fraud uh, conference in croke park and um, the National Cyber Security Centre for the UK, I mean, the, the shining light in, in terms of cyber for the UK, yeah. the CEO of that is a chap from Tyrone. 
Wow. The next speaker, ah. the next speaker, yeah, the next uh, Kieran, uh, Kieran Martin, the next speaker was Commander Karen Baxter, the commander for the city of London, head of, uh, they have the fraud portfolio for the UK, London, as everybody knows, the financial capital of the world, the lady in charge of that. Belfast, born and raised. Up up Belfast. Then, yeah, and then, uh, and then this field of crypto asset management that where I've sort of a lot of practical experience. I sort of I've been in the right place at the right time. I think is the way to look at it. But I know in years to come, I'd be kicking myself if I didn't sort of follow in those steps. I mean, the head of the UN cyber uh, office is a guy called Neil Walsh again from Glen Gormley. So you've just all of these. Do you know what actually? Now, I so I have a wee notebook that I write down um, all the questions and like the notes that I make during the interviews I actually wrote down Neil Walsh's name and he, I put him on the list of potential people to interview because I was like what I did not know that this dude was from Northern Ireland it, it, it's an incredible story and you've got the likes of him Neil, Karen, um, Keir Martin even the Transport for London um, I mean the guy that ran Heathrow Airport now running the Transport for London and has now been given the job of repairing the Houses of Parliament again what wow. a Belfast guy um, so you have all of these expats dotted around the world. We, we mentioned in the podcast that I, I met, I bumped into Brendan Rodgers on a flight. I mean, we, we see him as a celebrity and a football coach, but I mean, you look at the actual job. He's effectively the CEO of a multi multi million pound company and has some of the has had some of the biggest jobs, Liverpool and Celtic. So all these people in Northern Ireland are the people that sort of inspire me to think. Do you know what? It doesn't matter where you're from. If there's an opportunity, and if I can go off now and sort of talk about crypto assets and asset management all around the world. Well, the very fact that I'm from Ardoin, I'm from North Belfast, won't be a, a barrier. And there was something I was chatting to Nicola Mallon. Again, she grew up uh, a couple of doors away from me, an ex-Lord Mayor, now the Minister uh, as well, doing a great job and is very passionate, very sort of um, fired up about trying to make a difference in Northern Ireland. So I've got all these people around me now and I'm sort of thinking, do you know what, now's the time for me to take the plunge as well. So sort of watch this space there'll be a i'll be i'll be sort of trying to rival you for podcasts and yeah i was gonna say i can talk more than most so i think the whole point of a podcast is to let other people speak up I'm in trouble with that. But, uh, yes mate so i was that, gonna say to you like if you um if you need any help with the whole podcast and stuff you know i'm happy to hop on a call with you and, and work out through with you yeah, so. i think I was actually just speaking to Gavin Wall a couple of days ago uh, again. Definitely. And Gavin, obviously, uh, the, the Wall Group is one of the places I had my first job, one of the spars up in, in Ardoin. Yeah, I one didn't of the first know that. I oh, God, yeah. I, I, from when I was 16 Class. to 19, I, I, worked, I worked in the post office and in the shop when Gavin now owns the whole thing. Um, so, yeah, like this, I love this sort of wonderful sort of parochial sort of yeah. starting point for everybody. And now we're all sort of dotted around the world all doing, all doing different things. So hopefully if I can be another one of those people and sort of um, just sort of make my mark and try and add a bit of value along the way i'll be i'll be very happy so yeah what what could possibly go wrong <laughs> well you know there's opportunity in, in chaos and adversity so this is your moment to think you know going online it just makes total sense so um i'm just going to cut back in here to the, the 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 past version of yourself who's about to answer our stock questions and uh yeah i'm looking forward to see how people enjoy that so thanks for the call and mate uh thank you not a problem speak to you soon mate class cheers bye uh, we always kind of wrap these episodes up just with a couple of stock questions of questions we ask every single person um, I think the one I'll start with is you know if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland dead or alive out for coffee or out for a pint uh, who would you take where would you take them and uh, why 
Oh God, I wasn't prepped on this. It, it, it takes me half an hour to choose something on Netflix. <laughs> so this could be a very, very long. Um, I suppose sort of just immediately thinking off the cuff and I'm probably making some horrific mistake and missing someone much more important for my own selfish reasons. Um, I, I'm a Man United uh, fan. I've always been a fanatic sort of follower of, of George Best. And I think he was that sort of, sort of tortured genius. And if there was ever anyone, even just being where he was at that time in his life mm. in terms of exposure and everything else um, that he would certainly be someone that would, would fascinate me just to see what was it like living that life we talk about being a fish out of water but being plucked out of Belfast in the what sort of fifties and sixties, sure. and then being over into that world yeah. and being around the, the sort of the, the sort of Busby Babes and and Harry Gregg. Then he just died this week mm-hmm. um, as well, and I love learning those old sort of stories. So if I'm under pressure right now, he'd <laughs> probably be the the person I would just want to sort of get inside his head and find out what all that was actually yeah, was really like. So good. Um, next one is biggest challenge you faced, and how were you able to overcome it? I think the biggest challenge probably is the the perception of, of where you're from. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no there's no doubt about it. I um I spent many many years. I don't wanna, I don't want to say ashamedly, but I sort of not proud of the fact that I I did hide where I was from for mm-hmm. many many years. I mean, if someone had asked where you actually have a, have a funny story story about this because very quickly, um, I randomly had a chance meeting with Brendan Rogers. Nice on a flight, uh, coming back from Australia, and. He heard the accent and we got sort of chatting on the on the plane about watches and different things. And he said, oh, you should come along to a Leicester game anytime you're in the area. And um, I came along to a game and Brendan Rogers, uh, his family attend sort of virtually every game. So his brother, who's from obviously from Carnlock, but now living in North Belfast. Nice. We ended up being in seats next to his, his brother, uh, his brother <laughs> and his wife and, and, and all those guys. And when I met his, uh, what would be Brendan's sister-in-law, uh, as I was introduced to her, we both had the same sort of accent. Where are you from? Are you, what street are you from? Oh, no, this is where it started. This is in the middle of like the Leicester Players Lounge. And people are looking at us. He says, where are you from? And she said, I'm from North Belfast. And I said, I used to use North Belfast all the time. Oh. That, that either means Ardoing, New Lodge, all the places you've yeah, 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 yeah. like, you go first and went, Ardoing, New Lodge. <laughs> and you sort of realised that it, was, it wasn't just me that did it. And sure. I think it was because you did get that, you know, I remember sort of kids in St. Malachy's, you know, their mothers and fathers, you know, you know being invited to birthday parties. Yeah, like, yeah. Where are you from? You know, sort of, you know, hide, the, hide the expensive cutlery. <laughs> There's the kids from Ardoing and yeah, stuff like that. Sure, sure. Um, so that was, I think that was always a big challenge growing up. But likewise, I probably put it also down to give me the determination. I think there was a big part of me that was, no, I'll show you. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll work a bit harder at certain things where you're not maybe expecting me to keep going and yeah. keep pushing. So, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a big believer in, in sort of looking back um, on things. I think they are what they are. Learn from them. Use them to inform future decisions and, and sort of push on. But that was always that was always a, a big challenge for me. Mm-hmm. Flip side of that, biggest success? I think for, for me, the biggest success... It would be hard to, and I don't mean that in a loose way, it's hard to pin down. I'm sort of, I'm so sort of afraid to sort of badge anything as a success because you just never know going forward. I've got, uh, I've got two, I've got two lovely boys. Um, I've been divorced, I'm now remarried. I snuck off on Christmas Eve just this year. Nice one. Or just, just last year, sorry. Congrats. Just last year and uh, I, got, I got married to Rachel. And um, I think, I think for me, the biggest success without sounding sort of cheesy is the fact that anyone that knows me will probably say I'm usually always happy and approachable. I do think that I'm really, really grateful to just physically be alive. I've had so many friends that have had tragic circumstances where either they've got sick or someone's got sick or mental health and different um, mm. different things. And I haven't really struggled with that, um, if I'm being honest. So I guess I always have a massive amount of gratitude. And I think for me, 
if I could wish anybody else the same success, I would wish someone to be able to have that perspective and self-awareness of yeah. not beating yourself up. For me, it's probably the most freeing thing in the world. That mm. I'm going to make decisions. I'm going to make mistakes in the decisions. But I try not to judge myself too much for anything that goes wrong. And without it sound too sort of cheesy, that to me is probably the most successful and freeing thing I'll ever have. Yeah. Because and I think a lot of that's been enabled sort of, it certainly helps when your wife's a psychotherapist to be able to sort of steer you <laughs> on things. So she's really given me the push towards that. But I think that's for me. If I could share that with anybody to say, no, stop getting excited by something or yeah. don't get yourself worked up or it's not about you or talking people off a ledge. You're saying, just relax. I think that's the one thing I wish I could share with, uh, share with more people, whatever my particular set of circumstances are. It's rounded me in a certain way and there's plenty of things I'm crap at. But that's one thing I do, I'm, I'm quite proud of is my ability to sort of put myself in other people's shoes and try and sort of reach a consensus on mm. things and, and not be not be sort of mean or horrible to people. It's like the old sort of cheesy be kind things. We shouldn't have to say it. Yeah. But we kind of do. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, dude, last question. Question we always end on. If we could turn this We Recording Studio into some sort of time machine and go back to, I'm going to go back earlier than I usually do. Let's say you could sit beside yourself on the plane mm-hmm. on your way to New York and you're 11. Oh, okay. And you're yet a couple of minutes of 11-year-old Aiden's time. Yeah. Um, what would you say to him? I would say be braver. I think a lot of times I spent too many, I'm, only, I'm 37 now, but I already I can look back on different milestones in my life thinking I took far too long to make that decision. You know, be brave in your decisions, whether you could have a, whether it's a, someone has a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you want to get out of a relationship earlier, get out of it. If you want to take a new job, have a new job. If you want to mm-hmm. try something new, I think we, we do lock ourselves in this sort of, worry and judgment that we're afraid to do things I would say um, and Gary Vee's one of his my favourite quotes is that you know, decisions create opportunities mm. make decisions I used to spend an entire Friday night wanting to pick a VHS in my local video shop <laughs> and got to the stage at no time left to watch the bloody movie because I spent <laughs> so long deciding even like Rachel makes a joke now in a restaurant I've now got to the point where I just say suggest something for me yeah, yeah. The, 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 the waitress because I, I take so long making decisions so I would just tell myself Make a bloody decision. Mm. Get on with it. What's the worst that can happen? You'll learn from it the next time around. Mm. I wish I'd have knew that much, much earlier. It's awesome, bro. That was class. Thank you very, very much. I really appreciate your time. No, thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. No, super. And for all you guys listening in, thank you very much for making it all the way through to this point. Hope you enjoyed hearing Aiden's story as much as I did. Apologies for talking so much. <laughs> here, that's what you're here for. <laughs> you did you did well. You did your job. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next Monday morning with another incredible conversation with someone from Northern Ireland. And uh, until then, all the very best and cheers. Hello, my name is Simon Worthington and I am based in Port Stewart. I am the editor of Turf and Grain magazine, an independent magazine which is committed to sharing the stories, experiences and ideas of the people of Ireland. I listen to Best of Belfast because it does the same thing for Northern Ireland and it shows us all that Northern Ireland has a better story to tell than what is often represented in the mainstream media. My favourite episode is the episode with Ryan Crown. Um, Ryan is someone I know and someone whose amazing career I followed quite closely over the years. I support the podcast financially just because it's really important for independent media to receive backing because it's a really important space within our society and this podcast is just doing a really amazing thing for Belfast if I'm honest. If you've been on the fence about joining the Producers Club and would miss Best of Belfast if it wasn't here, I'd highly recommend considering joining it today. You can do that over at bestofbelfast.org and I look forward to chatting to you in the WhatsApp group soon. Thanks.